Uh, soccer season, and I would like to report that all the Russells won their games and all the Russells scored goals. And um, I was the maniac on the side making a fool of myself. It was good. Uh, we even traveled to Vine Grove and kicked some Vine Grove butt. Isn't that right, Coach Dusty? That's right, man. So, that's always a good time. All right, uh, today's message is called Firstborn Son. We're in a series here where we're walking through Exodus really slow. I thought we were going quicker than this, and we're just going slow. And I'm in no hurry. But today's message is called Firstborn Son, and uh, we're going to be looking at just two verses this morning. I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll go ahead and put those verses up, and uh, we'll read them. This is going to be our jump-off text. We have looked at this text just a tiny bit the last couple weeks, but I want to just give a whole Sunday to it because I think it's so important. Verse 22 says this. This is the Lord talking to Moses. He's about to go back to Egypt. He says, this is what you should say to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go whole, Behold, I will kill your firstborn son. One of the purposes of Scripture, before we even get into the big ideas, I just want to frame this a little bit. One of, one of the purposes of Scripture is it's given to us to provide us with the right definitions and the right perspectives and the right understanding of life. And it's really amazing how often, even in my own life, I can go living and believing or thinking a certain way about a certain thing only to read scripture with fresh eyes and then realize, wow, I've pretty much spent my whole life thinking the wrong thing about this entire area or this whole concept or this whole worldview. It's amazing how often that happens. And when that happens, when you read scripture with fresh eyes and you realize, wow, I've really parked, I've parked a part of my um, heart or a part of my understanding in the wrong spot, it can be a little bit painful. But ultimately, it's life-giving. Uh, I call those moments, they're just, they're little breakings. And, and when you get broken in those places, what's really happening is, it's the outer false layer of who I am that's being chipped away by the scripture. And this is one of the things that the scripture is. The scripture is, in some ways, a chisel. All the babies hate this part. <laughs> but in some ways, the scripture is a chisel in the hand of the Lord. And he just, it comes and he begins to just take off that false self. That, that part that we thought was connected to us, but really wasn't. When we give up, when we give up unkingdom ideas... We're giving up that false self. And it can be hard to give up a thought that you've held for your whole life. It can be hard to admit that you're wrong. But when you do, there's a lightness that comes from this kind of letting go. And that's ultimately a good thing. And uh, the reason I wanted to frame it like that is because this morning we may have to do some letting go. And we may have to do some yielding to the chisel a little bit. Um, because I want to look this morning at the subject of freedom. Uh, the subject of freedom is all over the scriptures. So from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end, one of the main themes that's woven through all the way is this idea of freedom. Like where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's what? There's freedom. Like it's just everywhere. We could do this all day long. 
It's one of the themes that's woven in. It's not just in the scripture, uh, but it's also in the songs we sing. Uh, It's in the songs we sing here at the Vineyard. And all over the world this morning, Christians are declaring to one another, to themselves, and to the powers of the air that they have received some aspect of freedom from who Jesus is in their life. And so we begin to sing that. And then thirdly, and this is one of the ways that our concept of freedom actually can be uh, subverted without us even knowing it. Thirdly, we have a concept of freedom just because we're Americans. We have this idea of like what it means to be free or whatever. And what we're going to find out this morning is that some of our developed sense of freedom, it's actually challenged here in the scriptures. It's challenged. It's actually possible to have a concept of freedom, to grow up with it, for it to be a part of our national identity. And it's possible that that, that, that part of our concept completely misses what kingdom freedom really is. And so at that point, we should look at the scripture here a little closer. And the first thing that I want you to understand is that these two verses, these are, these are freedom verses. I hope you can see it. The Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And then he says to Pharaoh, let my son go. That phrase, let my son go, that's a freedom statement. Let him go. You've been, you've been holding him as a slave. I'm telling you to let him go. And God is involved in this. And we're going to see a little bit this morning. We're going to build, build, build up from this verse and see what kingdom freedom really looks like. But before we get to let my son go and before we get to freedom, we really need to deal with the very first thing that God says to Moses and to Pharaoh, through Moses, I should say. He says, Israel is my firstborn son. And that little phrase there is really important. It's a really big deal. That little phrase, Israel is my firstborn son, it's filled with overtones. As soon as you read that or you hear me say that, especially because hopefully we've been reading the scripture most of our lives, you should think of not just this, but you should think of something else. What should you think of? You should think of Jesus. As soon as you hear firstborn son in your other ear, you should be thinking of Jesus. You, gotta, you kind of kind of hold those together. So, uh, so when God is talking about Israel here, he's actually talking about the fact that he loves Israel like he loves his firstborn son. And there's this overtone for us. And one of the things I want you to see here is that this is, an, this is a scripture that's not just about freedom, but it's about him being invited into the burning heart of Jesus and his love. When God says... When God says that he loves Israel, what he's really saying here is he's saying, I love Israel the same way that I love Jesus. See, a lot of us in the room have a concept that God loves Jesus. Uh, In the Trinity, there's love. And the Father loves his Son. And not only that, but the Father is committed to his Son in a profound way. And when God says, Israel is my firstborn son, what he's saying is, I am committed with eternal love to Israel. I hope we can hear that. I'm, I'm committed here. I, I, I love Israel. The same kind of love I have for my son is the kind, is the kind that I love that I have for, for Israel. And uh, what this means is, it means that God's love is not just something that he has. This is really important. God's love is not just something that he has, but it's who he is. The scripture says that God is love. God doesn't have love. He is love. This is a really huge thing that you have to grab a hold of. So when God says, when God says, Israel is my firstborn son. He is saying, not, John, not only do, do, I, do I have affection for him, but I am, I am drawing him into my burning heart. Um, it, it, it is something that I have for, for, this, for this group of people. 
And, and some of us are thinking in the room, well, that's really great. That's really wonderful. God loves Israel, but I'm not a Jew. So I guess we're all just like going to have to live in bummer town. <laughs> well, the first thing I'd like to say is we shouldn't shrink into our inferiority complexes too quickly. Uh, that little phrase, firstborn son, communicates several things. Several things. You should hear Jesus in that, and you should hear God's love, and you should hear his eternal affections placed upon a people. But if God has a firstborn son, doesn't it stand to reason that it is implying that there are other born sons? If there are not other born sons, why would he say firstborn son? He would just say, Israel is my son, my one, that that son I have. But because he says firstborn, the implication is that there are other born sons. And so when God begins to talk about Israel here, it is ordinal, but it's, but it's also positional. It's ordinal in the sense that somebody has to go first. And in this way, Israel was called to live as a leader to the rest of the world, to show everybody in the world what it means to live in the love of the Father. But it's also more than that. And as a father who has a firstborn son... And who also has other children. I have a firstborn son. His name is River. He's awesome. I love him. You try to hurt him, I'll break your arms. But as a father who has a firstborn son, this is really important as well. I can tell you that I love him and that my love for him is unique and my love for him is specific. It's unique to him and it's specific to him. And even though my love for him is unique and specific to him, it does not diminish my love for my other children. So what does this mean? When the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, he is saying, I love Israel like I love Jesus. And if God can love Israel like he loves Jesus, then he can love the rest of his children the very same way. That includes me and it includes you. There's an affection in the heart of God that is burning for everybody in this room. And it's the same affection that the father has for his own son, Jesus. The Father's love for Jesus is special, but that love does not diminish the way that he feels about the rest of his family. And the reason that it doesn't diminish is very simple. Because the kingdom of heaven is not a zero-sum game. A lot of us in the room are businessmen, businesswomen. A lot of us in the room understand the way the world works. And one of the ways the world works is that in business, it's always a zero-sum game. What does that mean? Well, a zero-sum game means this, that if there's a hundred, if somebody takes one, somebody's losing. That's what it means. For every time there's a winner, there has to be a loser. That's basic business. If there's a winner, there's a loser. But in the kingdom of heaven, that's not the way it works. That's never the way it works with, with love and the affection of God. Just because God loves Aaron Charlo, it doesn't mean that he has taken some of his love away from me in order to love Aaron. That's not who he is. And so when God says, Israel is my firstborn son, it doesn't take anything away from his affection for Jesus or his affection for Lori. It just doesn't. In fact, it means that it's being multiplied throughout the world. As a father, there's nothing that could challenge the love that I have for all of my children. My love for my kids, it just simply is. And it's an ongoing expression of my own being. So what I want you to see right here off the bat is that what is true for Jesus is true for Israel. And if it's true for Israel, it's true for you and I. But it doesn't stop there. 
because God loves Israel, because he says he's his firstborn son, God begins to make demands based upon his love. He says, let my son go. He's speaking to Pharaoh here. And uh, even now, even now this morning, uh, for anybody in the room who is oppressed, for anyone in the room who is suffering, God is speaking. You may not be able to hear it. It might be pretty quiet. But God is speaking, and he is beginning to make demands based upon his affection for you. He is beginning to make demands to oppressors, to anyone who who oppresses his children. And if you're oppressed, you should rejoice because you have a father in heaven who sees and is taking note. Uh, Likewise, if you're oppressing people, you should tremble. (laughs) You should tremble because you have a father in heaven who sees and he's taking note. And the demand that he makes that let my son go, that he may serve me, reveals the nature of kingdom freedom. And this is really what I wanted to get to this morning. I want you to underline that if you're in your Bible. Let my son go that he may serve me. That is a picture of kingdom freedom. In the kingdom of heaven, freedom is being released to serve God. That's what freedom is. Freedom is service. Now that's sort of an odd statement, especially in the Exodus text, and especially as we've been looking at what's happened to Israel. It's a bit of an odd statement. There's a little bit of irony in there. And the reason why is this. Because up to this point, Israel's been a slave serving Egypt for 400 years. And here I am telling you that freedom is being released to serve God. It's still service. Uh, This is important because Israel had been serving their fingers to the bone for the last 400 years. But true freedom has more to do with who is our master than what we're doing. This is what the scripture declares to us. Who your master is has more to do with freedom than what you're actually doing. Israel was not just a slave because he was making bricks without straw. Israel was not a slave because she was living, because Israel was a slave because she was not living under the love and the care of God. Now this should cause us to reconsider what we really believe freedom is. This should cause us to think. We've got to think here. We're going to think about some stuff really hard for about seven minutes. Okay, can we do that? We need to consider what we believe freedom is. I'm going to ask you to do some hurdles with me. Because the first thing I want to, to say, if, 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 in king, if in the kingdom of heaven, if freedom is serving God, if it's living in his, underneath him, if it's living in his care and his affection, that means some things. And it may mean that we have to adjust our idea of what freedom is. Because there is an American text that is being spoken over us about what freedom is, and the kingdom is like, yeah, that doesn't really catch it. Here's what I mean. Number one, uh, there's an aspect of freedom that's illusionary. There's an aspect of your freedom that's an illusion. And when I say that there's an aspect of your freedom that's an illusion, what I'm not saying is, I'm not saying in the Calvinist sense. Some of you guys know what Calvinism is? That God is sovereign over the, law, over the world and he controls every single thing. And even if I knock off this, like he willed and ordained that and everything. I'm not saying that. Uh, by the way, I do believe that God is sovereign. Just want to say that. But what I'm saying is this. I'm, freedom is illusionary, but not in the Calvinist sense. Not that God has made it his job to micromanage the universe because he hasn't. God is not a micromanager. If you believe that God is micromanaging every single little detail, every single little thing in the world, uh, we're going to have to adjust some of that. That's not who he is. He's not a micromanager. We do a disservice to God and his dream for the universe when we reduce his sovereignty to something benign like micromanagement. Those kinds of definitions steal dignity from humanity and they ultimately steal from God. For instance, this is the question we have to ask if that's our worldview about who God is. We have to ask this question. 
How great is a God who can't create life with its own ability to engage and interact with the rest of creation? Secondly, how narcissistic is God if he must create only the illusion of freedom? I would ask God this kind, that God this kind of a question. Why are you working behind the scenes making all the choices? Who exactly are you performing for? Are you that insecure? See, I'm not talking about freedom as an illusion in that sense. I'm talking about freedom as an illusion in this sense. Freedom is an illusion in the sense that everybody in the room is serving somebody. Bob Dylan had it right. You got to serve somebody. This is what Dylan said. I chose this verse on purpose because it has more to do with me. (laughs) You may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working in a barber shop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's mistress. Maybe somebody's heir. But you got to serve somebody. Yes, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord. But you're going to have to serve somebody. There it is. That's the gospel according to Bob Dylan. And it's actually accurate. It's actually accurate. You see, freedom is an illusion in the sense that everybody in the room is always serving somebody. Freedom is an illusion when we do the math in such a way as to equate freedom with do whatever I want, whenever I want. Now, here's the deal. In America, we have equated freedom in exactly this particular way. Freedom in America is this. Do whatever you want pretty much whenever you want. And in fact, many of us have bought into this idea that the American dream is eventually I will progress, I'll get richer, or I'll get more stable. And the richer I get and the more stable I get empowers me to be able to do more of what I want when I want. The more we go into a life that increases our ability to do what we want when we want, the more we're buying into an Egypt worldview and we're buying into this idea that there is a throne that I'm eventually going to sit on and everyone's going to serve me and I'm going to extract the talents and the resources from everyone beneath me so that I can be king. That's the problem. The kingdom of heaven offers us Jesus who lays down his life. Freedom is an illusion because we buy into this idea of do whatever I want, whenever I want. Uh, That sentiment feels like freedom, but in short order, we become slaves to our own appetites. I've got a friend. He's uh, about to come out of rehab, which is awesome. I've known this guy my entire life. And he ruined about seven or seven and a half years of his life doing whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. See, if you do whatever you want, whenever you want, you actually become a slave to your own appetites. That kind of freedom is actually an illusion. It actually isn't real. There's a couple things that we need to understand about all of our yeses and our unmitigated desires. If all of your desires, if all of my desires are unmitigated, if all of my yeses, if all of your yeses are unfettered, and you and I only do what we want when we want. We need to realize that it's probably coming at someone else's expense. At a certain point, what I want, when I want, might come at your expense. And if it's coming at your expense, then that isn't freedom. 
It's not freedom for you, and it's not freedom for me. It's actually an illusion. It's kind of like the dad who's hobby-obsessed. thought I'd pick on dads for a minute here. It's kind of like dads who are hobby-obsessed. By the way, there's nothing wrong with a hobby, and every dad needs one. If you don't have one, you got to get one. But you can actually become hobby-obsessed. You can actually begin to arrange the entire family and the entire week around whether or not you're going to do the thing that you're really into. And you have to begin to ask yourself, is that freedom for the rest of the family? It's freedom from them, but is it good for you or for them? What happens when everyone else has to serve my freedom? What happens if I'm living in freedom, but it's making everyone around me a slave? That's, a, that's an illusion. See, eventually our free choices begin to choose for us and we become involved in a battle that we never considered. This is why everybody who's a follower of Jesus needs to think really long and hard if we're beginning to successfully arrange life in such a way that we're always doing whatever we want whenever we want. It won't be long and you'll turn into a Pharaoh rather than a Jesus. That kind of freedom is an illusion. But there is a kind of freedom that's real. And we see it in the text here. Freedom, according to the scriptures, is living under God's care and under his will. It's being free to serve God. He says, let my son go that he may serve me. Freedom, according to the scripture, freedom in the kingdom is living under God's care and will. And this is, this is really great news. Because when we begin to allow God to be the leader. When we begin to be people who are satisfied to live beneath God and to serve Him, we're actually coming into the best place for us because God is the only person big enough to not need anything from us, not even worship. I know that sounds weird. But did you know that God is not insecure? And did you know that God doesn't need anything from you? And He doesn't need anything from me? up to and including worship? No, don't get me wrong. He receives worship. And he receives it just like every father receives kisses and hugs from his kids. He doesn't need it. He doesn't need it. In fact, God was living billions and trillions upon gazillions of years before you or I were ever able to give him anything, and he was perfectly happy. He's not insecure. He's not narcissistic. And because God is the one person who's in the universe who doesn't need anything from you, he's the, one who, he's the one person in the universe who will never manipulate you to get what he doesn't need. This is, this is actually a really huge deal. God doesn't need anything from you, and so he won't manipulate you. And so when you say, you know what, God? I'm going to begin to enter into true freedom, living under your will, and I'm going to be your servant We just entered into the safest place because we just came underneath the one person who's never going to manipulate us trying to get something from us that he actually doesn't need. If you've never been manipulated, you know that's really great news. (laughs) Yeah, that's not the way it works. He's also the one person in the universe who knows the design. And when I'm talking about knows the design, he knows the design not just for me, but he knows the design for you. And he knows the design for all of life, like in all of the universe. He knows how the whole thing's supposed to work. That's freedom. 
It's freedom to be your true self, blessed by God and extending that blessing further out into the world. Freedom is you and I being able to live and be who we were made to be. In the universe, there's a spot that's been created just for you and a spot that's been created just for me. And if you don't live in it, then it'll, it, it goes unlived in. Um, and, and, and by the way, when I say that there's a spot just for you and just for me, I'm, I mean a spot in every way that we can talk about a spot. I'm talking about there's a geographic spot for you. Like people do live on the planet. And that's actually really important to have a connection to the earth. God has placed you. He, there, he has given you a geography, but then he's also given you a, a place in terms of relationships. He has woven you into community. He has tucked you inside a family. Psalm 68 says that he takes the lonely and the isolated and he places them into family. There's a spot for you in the universe. And one of the things that I hear in that is the, that there is a garden for every single person. Like this idea of the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, it's not just something that happened, it's something that's happening. It's not just about Adam and Eve, but it's about me and Brent and Heather and everybody else that's in this room. Like there's a spot. God has made a Garden of Eden for everyone. Everyone's got a spot to live in. That's what freedom is. It's to take up your dominion. It's to take up ownership. It's to begin to live underneath him in the spot that he's given you relationally, geographically, family-wise, what you do with your hands, like your employment, what you want to be, all of that is really a big deal. And so freedom is to live underneath Him in the context that He's given you. But freedom is also the ability to not live within those boundaries. It's the freedom to say no, to be blind, to close your eyes to choose not to see, to look the other direction. It's the ability to be deceived. And this introduces a megadose of reality. You know, that serpent in the Garden of Eden, it's not just some ancient Near Eastern myth. It isn't just some fantasy. It's a reality that exists in every person's garden that's in the room right now. In every perfect place that God has created for His beloved children, there's a deceiver, and the temptation is to believe another thing. There's always that temptation. What are we going to believe? I don't know if you know this, but what you're filled with is determined by who you live under. And human beings were made to live under God. We're not the highest beings in the universe. Psalm chapter 8, verse 5 says this. It says, you have made him, meaning Humanity. You have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. This little theme is all the way through the scriptures. We were made to live under God, and when we live under him, when we serve him, we're filled with glory and majesty. Can you see the picture that Psalm 8, 5 portrays for us? See, we have God, and then humanity lives beneath him, and then God begins to crown him with glory and majesty. Everything that we ascribe to God are things that God in return gives back to people. This is important because what it means for you and I is it means that you don't have to reach for glory and majesty. You can just receive it. You can rest in it, already having it. This is, this is the fundamental deception that exists in the entire universe. It centers on a distortion of this fact. It's a desire to be something higher than a human. It's the desire to not only be like God, but actually to be God. You and I, we face that serpent in the garden just like Adam and Eve did. 
when you, be, you and I begin to not believe that we've been made a little lower than God and that he's crowned us with glory and majesty. The, the, the fundamental deception in the whole world centers on this one truth, that God will give everything he is to everyone beneath him. When we, when we stop believing that, we start reaching for what he's trying to give. And when you begin to reach for what he's trying to give, you're actually not just reaching for glory and majesty. You reach up and you're trying to take his spot. And now this manifests in a lot of different ways. But the main way it manifests is, it's this really quiet thing that happens on the inside of a person. And sometimes what's coming out of a person's mouth sounds super spiritual. But in between the super spiritual words they're saying is this, is this, is this ache of the heart. And the ache of the heart is this. Me, who I am, a person, a human being, limited, hungry, sometimes tired, going to work, getting up, living life, yada, yada, is not enough. That's the, that's, the, that's the first deception that Adam and Eve, is the first deception in the world was being a human is not enough. And I want to tell you this morning, for you to be a person, just, just who you are to be a person is enough. Because if you will sit in that spot of being a human being, God will fill you with glory and majesty. He, he will fill you with the fullness of who he is. Go and try to reach for that stuff. It distorts who you are. See, God is not greedy. He's not a hoarder. You seen that show, Hoarders? It's the scariest show on TV. If for some reason I walk away from Jesus and he were to send me to hell, it would be hoarders. Over and over. It would just be unending years. I would be in this house. It would, I'd be in a house full of stuff. I would never be able to get out. You wouldn't, there, would, there would be couches, but you could never sit on them. There would be beds that you could never sleep in. See, God is a giver. He's not a hoarder. They don't even have that show in heaven. And he doesn't keep the good stuff. Everything he is, he's given away. And so the fundamental role of sons and daughters is, number one, it's to be. And then number two is to receive not to reach. As soon as you go to reaching, you begin to you think you're reaching for fruit. You think you're reaching for glory and honor, but what you're actually reaching for is his spot. You see, when Eve reached for fruit, she stopped being. She was reaching for more than fruit. The temptation is to be God. And when you know what? And and no one ever thinks, you know what, I'm gonna wake up today and I'm gonna I'm gonna be God. You know, we never think like that. You know, it sounds stupid when we talk about it in this context. It's way more subtle than that. Always way more subtle. It, it, it goes more like this. You know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to win by all means necessary. Like, whatever it is. Like, I'm just going to, I'm, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to, it doesn't matter what I have to do. I'm just, I've got to be a winner. And it doesn't matter, you know, Who's losing? So long as I can chill, you know, it's great. And what ends up happening is we begin to take on this nature that's Egypt and it's the nature of ruling people. It's the nature of running the game in our favor, using other people as our servants. We begin to arrange life so that it runs for our benefit. And If somebody else gets a benefit, that's okay, but as long as we're getting it, that's the main thing. 
But true freedom is living under God. I want to show you a scripture from John 15. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, took off his outer garments and he put on a towel and he washed the feet of his disciples. That's when he called them friends. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what the master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. See, true freedom in the kingdom is to live beneath God, to be satisfied with being a person, and to begin to serve. And when you become a servant, one of the really great things that you find out is that God will never let servants stay servants. In the kingdom of heaven, servants never stay servants. They always become friends of God. Uh, How many of you guys would like to be uh, friends with Jesus? Like real friends with Jesus? Well, you have to go hang out where Jesus is hanging out. And you know where Jesus is hanging out? At the bottom. Jesus is always the guy who goes to the bottom. If you want to be friends with God, you've got to go to the bottom. The world tells you you've got to go to the top. Make everybody serve you. The kingdom of heaven says, no, you go to the bottom and serve everybody. And that's what freedom is. See, you, you can't reach into heaven. Nobody can. You can't impress God into friendship. You can't be a super Christian and get Jesus to be your friend. He's like, well, I mean, you can knock yourself out trying to be a super Christian, but you and I were already friends. Like, I already liked you. <laughs> you can't jump into being, and you can't climb into greatness, but you can serve. Everybody can go to the bottom, and every time you go to the bottom, you end up meeting Jesus. And one of the great things about going to the bottom is you don't even have to be smart to go to the bottom. Even dumb people can go to the bottom. You can be dumb, you can be poor, you can be talentless, and you can be great in the kingdom of heaven. You don't, you don't, have, to, you don't have to know anything. You don't have to know anything. You don't have to have any special skills. This is the wonderful thing about what Jesus offers people, and that's freedom. Everybody who goes to the bottom becomes God's friend. If for no other reason, it's because you end up meeting Jesus there. And how many of you understand that in order to be friends, you have to hang out with somebody? You can't be best friends with somebody you never talk to. You can't be best friends with somebody you never hang out with. And if your whole life is people serving you, if your whole life is you becoming greater and greater and greater, and everyone around you feeds you and feeds you, and every, every day is more of you doing what you want when you want, you'll never be friends with God because He's not there. He left the room with Elvis. But everybody who goes to the bottom becomes God's friend because that's where Jesus says. What does it mean to serve in this way? Here's what it means to serve this way. To live beneath God, to be satisfied with being just a person, with that being enough, and beginning to serve God and beginning to serve people. Uh, what that means is, it means... Doing it when you don't have to. That's the essence of Jesus. This is the essence of Jesus. Uh, you, you understand that Jesus was under no contractual obligation to do any of the stuff that he was famous for. Even dying on the cross, uh, being raised from the dead, and willing to take on your sin and bury sin. Right? He, 
Jesus didn't have to do it. No one was going to arm wrestling him into doing it. He's the king of the universe, and the glory of Jesus, the freedom of the kingdom, and the freedom of the king is seen most clearly in the fact that he does what he does not have to do. So if you would like to have an intersection with God, if you would like to have a kingdom moment, one of the things that you and I need to begin to meditate on is we need to meditate on where am I strong, where am I powerful, and where do people, where can I receive service from people? Um, And in those places, those are the very places if I want to have a kingdom interaction, if I just flip that around and go, the places that I'm strong, the places that I'm smart, the places where I'm talented, the places where I receive glory, honor, and praise from people, uh, the places that I receive money from people, those are the places that because I don't have to, I'm going to. If you will go and begin to serve other people, if you'll begin to live underneath God, and rather than continuing to extract the strength and benefit from other people, if you go lower and begin to serve them in that very place that you're the strongest, you'll meet Jesus. Why? Because he was under no obligation to do any of the things that he's famous for doing, yet he still did it. It's amazing. Jesus lived for untold eons in heaven, in perfect union and in perfect happiness, in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and he's the guy who's born to the Virgin Mary, 30 years, slaving away in a carpenter shop, splinters in his hands, and then at the end he gets nailed to a cross, but before that he's on his hands and knees, half naked, washing dirty feet of guys who walked in the street, stepping on cow manure. This is what he doesn't have to do, but what he does. That's, one, that's incredible. There's good news this morning. You can be totally, 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 totally free. You can be totally free. couple questions to meditate on this week. What am I standing under? A better question might be, what am I filled with? Because what you're filled with is what you're standing under. Uh, I would suggest to everyone in the room, sometime in the next week, to take a moment or two and get like really honest with yourself. It's really hard to do, especially here at church. Usually you have to go home to get honest with yourself. I recommend being mercilessly honest with yourself at least twice a year. What am I filled with? Like, you, you know what you're really filled with. Like maybe it's bitterness. Maybe you're just pissed. If you're filled with bitterness, then what are you standing under? Time to stand beneath the Lord. And secondarily, where are some places I can go lower and serve? Where are the places where I'm strong, I'm really strong, I'm talented, I'm good, and I'm winning, and people serve me? Where are those places? Identify those in your life. Everybody in here has strengths where they can go lower. Those are the very places that God wants to bring the kingdom. Amen? Amen. Hey, if you're on ministry team this morning, why don't you come on up? And why don't the rest of you guys uh, stand up? I want to pray for you this morning. Mm -hmm. 
I'm going to pray for you guys real quick. But afterwards, if, you, if you're sick in your body in any way or you're just having a hard time in life and you need somebody to pray for you, we've got some people up here who are trained and can do that. Also, if anybody in this room has never followed Jesus in baptism and you want to chat with me, grab me right after the service. We had two people meet the Lord in first service this, this Sunday. They, just wanted, they came up and said, hey, I want to follow Jesus. I've never done it. It was really cool. And it was so like nothing. It was, it was great. It was, there, was, there was not one ounce of manipulation anywhere. That was refreshing for me. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Why don't you put your hand on your heart? Lord, we love you. And we just think you're great. And Lord, if we're really honest with ourselves, we know that we are not always filled with glory and majesty. And it's because we don't always stand under you. Father, we admit that sometimes we're trying to stand shoulder to shoulder with you when we should just go lower. And Father, we ask that you would help us. God, I ask that you would, that you would give us the Jesus heart of service to be your son who serves, to be your daughter who serves. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, who is wonderful. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you need prayer for anything, you come on up. Otherwise, give somebody a high five and a hug. Happy Sunday.